Please do sit down and let me invite Ben to join me. I know we've got a number of visitors. It's lovely to see uh, Suzanne and Melissa and Jono and um, Teresa and a few others. So lovely to have visitors. But a special welcome to you, Ben. It's just great to have you. Let me give you a Thank you, John. shake of the hand. It's a tradition we have in this yep. country. Um, tell us, uh, Ben is one of our mission partners from Duke Street. And how long have you been in New Zealand, Ben, now? Uh, 15 years. 15 years. So you've got three Kiwi kids. Three Kiwi kids. Two Kiwi adults as well, though. But, uh, <laughs> ah. I came in on my New Zealand passport this time, not my Did British you? one. Did really they refuse you? Or? Uh, I was actually <laughs> refused the British passport, but let's not talk about no, that. No. Right. <laughs> Still working on that. Okay. Uh, tell us, in a no wait, now you're going to be reporting tonight, so do you just want to give us a trailer of tonight? Uh, yeah, um, God has been very good, but the last three years have been very hard. Yeah. Is that enough? That's, that's enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do. So come and join us at 5.30 when Ben will be giving um, basically a slightly different uh, evening gathering. Um, ben will be giving a full report of the last, well, a bit more than three years, isn't it? But the toughness. So come and hear why he says it's so tough, how we can pray for him as one of our mission partners. Uh, and then we'll be bringing a shorter word from the Lord than we normally get in an evening. But we'd love to see you. But I'm not going to take any more of your time. I'm going to let you pray and take us forward. You've got your Bible. I'll take this one away. That's great. Um, it's lovely to have you with us, Ben. We're looking forward to hearing what God has to say through you. Great. Thanks. Okay. Take care. Well, kia ora, morena, tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa. And evidently there are no Kiwis in the audience today. <laughs> uh, basically saying a big welcome, good to be here. It is wonderful, and I cannot stress that enough. It is wonderful to be back here. Um, it is thrilling to be in this new auditorium and not taking away from anything about how fabulous the auditorium is and wanting to continue supporting that. So please do, and I've not been put up to that. It is even more thrilling to see this place filled and vibrant with people worshiping God, opening his word and singing his praises. Uh, don't ever take that for granted. Um, I've said to quite a number of friends as people ask about connections with Duke Street, that two of the happiest years of my life was spent here uh, 20 odd years ago now. Um, and some of my best church experiences have been at Duke Street. So uh, it is good to be back here. Uh, but let's, let's turn to God's word and hear from him. Let's ask God to speak to each one of us now. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak by your spirit to each one of us. We're aware as we come from a busy week and a busy world and a broken world that we need you. And so we ask that we would hear your voice and that we would be obedient to you, whatever you call us to do and however you call us to respond. May we not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray this in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen. I should just say, for those of you that have asked about the family, uh, I am here in the UK with Hannah, our eight-year-old daughter, but I send her apologies. She's actually over in Northern Ireland with her grandparents, 
She's not seen them for four years, so I think they're delighted to be taking her to church today. Jen and the boys have had to stay on. We felt we could take Hannah out of school, and you don't get fined for that in New Zealand. It's a really nice thing. Uh, So she's missing six weeks of school. The summer holidays start on Friday, and on Saturday, Jen and the boys are flying from uh, Wellington to Auckland to San Francisco to Heathrow. They're due to arrive on Sunday morning next week, and I've said to Jen, we will do everything we can to get you to Duke Street. So, she won't be thanking me for it, but God willing, uh, if all goes to plan, they should be joining me uh, next Sunday, and then we have time with family. A few months ago, Jen, my wife, and I celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary. We moved to New Zealand three months after getting married, two suitcases each, uh, and we've picked up plenty of baggage since. I believe that, as the Bible says, marriage should be honored by all. And so, whenever friends are celebrating wedding anniversaries, as well as ourselves, I think that those are good occasions, and some of you uh, will have celebrated far more wedding anniversaries than our 15th. But through the kindness of friends, Jen and I managed on a very rare occasion, we don't have family around to look after the kids, we managed to head to a place called Queenstown. Uh, for a rare treat of a weekend together celebrating. I think there may even be a picture of Queenstown. Let's just see if that comes up. It's worth seeing. It's a lovely place, spectacular scenery, stunning mountain ranges, beautiful lake. It's the adventure capital of New Zealand. It really is fantastic. These are the remarkable mountains, uh, mountain range. They're called remarkable because they go from north to south pretty much uh, spot on. Uh, When my father-in-law visited New Zealand, he developed a photo book afterwards of his trip, and he noted down uh, about the remarkables. The trouble was he noted and called them the Incredibles, which are something else. (laughs) Jen and I went to Queenstown for our wedding anniversary. We enjoyed good food, time together, different experiences to those that we do with the children. We took loads of photos, and one of the things that some of you will know about me is I love to take pictures of New Zealand. I've been determined never to lose the wow of how spectacular it is, the stunning scenery. So I'm always taking pictures. And if, you're, if you've ever been traveling, just go back a second and just keep the other one on for a minute. Uh, Don't look at that picture, it'll spoil what I'm about to say. If you've ever been traveling, you'll know the dilemma of getting a good picture of yourself. You either have to ask someone to take a picture of you, or you have to take a selfie yourself. Now, if you're someone like John with long arms, that's no trouble at all. But some of us are short, and you'll always have at least one double chin, maybe a few double chins in a photo, because your arms aren't quite long enough. Well, Jen and I, on our wedding anniversary, wanting to have uh, memories of our time together. So we were walking by the lakeside in the town with the mountains in the background, and we saw a group of artists and photographers all busy taking shots or painting paintings, capturing the beautiful landscape by the historic TSS Earnslaw steamboat. Now, when I say historic, it's historic by New Zealand standards. It was built in 1912. But it's the only remaining commercial 
coal-powered steamship in the Southern Hemisphere. So it, it's notable. So we were walking past the group of photographers, and I politely said to one of them, would you be willing to take a picture of the two of us with the scenery behind us, please? And one of the party kindly volunteered, and we stood and we smiled. She moved us around a little, moved herself into different angles so she could get the best view, took a few photos, and then handed the photo back to me and said to check that they weren't blurred or anything. So we can go to the picture now. I realized at that moment that the picture had captured Jen and myself very clearly, and yes, there was scenery behind, but the scenery consisted entirely of the TSS Ernslaw. None of the mountains, well, very little of the mountains, managed to get in. Now, don't get me wrong, I love a good steamship, but I wanted the mountains. I wanted the real scenery. When you've got a mountain range, a stunning snow-covered mountain range that rises 2,000 meters sharply above a glistening lake on a beautifully clear and crisp morning, a picture zoomed in on us and the TSS Ernslaw wasn't quite what I was thinking. Now, being an Englishman, when the lady handed it back to me and said, do you want to just check that they're all right? Of course I turned to her and said, yes, yes, thank you, that's fantastic, great. As we muttered along the way, grumbling, and then took some more pictures with selfies and double chins galore. We went on our way laughing about it, and sometimes those photos become the ones that you remember. But we had a sense of bewilderment that she could miss the most obvious thing right in front of her. And it got me thinking about misdirected focus and missing the most obvious things that are right in front of us. We're coming up to Christmas, celebrating Advent, and yet around us, so many people this Christmas time are going to miss the most obvious thing right in front of them, that Christmas is all about Jesus. And sadly, I think sometimes as Christians in the church, we can sometimes do the same ourselves. That what should be the most obvious things are squeezed out. That we focus on good things, and don't get me wrong, I believe as Christians we should be involved in many good things. If you want to put more plainly, we might be tempted to be distracted by secondaries rather than keeping the main thing the main thing. It's a danger for you, it's a danger for me, it's a danger for Duke Street, it's a danger for TSCF, the organization, the mission agency I lead. As one author so helpfully puts it, one generation believes something, the next assumes it, and the third will forget and deny it. And isn't that what's true in what's happening with the census this week here in the UK? So arising out of those thoughts, this morning I want to look at the story that was read to us in the passage that was read and be reminded by Peter and John of some pretty obvious things, but no less significant things things that we may be in danger of assuming and in the process potentially forget. The story is fairly simple. I don't want to assume that you know it. It begins in the chapter before, so you can read that later yourself. But let me summarize it for you. 
Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He asked for arms and held out his palms, and this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold I have none, but such as I have give I you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And those of you that know the song, he went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping, praising God. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The trouble was, a man that has been a lame beggar since birth, that has been healed, isn't an everyday occurrence. And so this man becomes the talk of the town. People are amazed. They're wondering what has happened. And it starts a whole chain, chain reaction, I guess. And crowds come rushing to meet Peter and John at Solomon's colonnade. Peter doesn't miss the opportunity. With the man still holding on to him, Peter starts proclaiming why God has healed him and how they should respond too. So come to chapter 4. The scene's changing. Look at verse 1. And I'm afraid my notes are from a slightly different translation, but sometimes it's good to hear a little translation difference. Look at verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. If you want this summarized in a more modern song, the Kaiser Chief song fits well. I predict a riot. And that was what was happening There was a fear that there was going to be a riot. And so the religious leaders are concerned about this and get Peter and John, the people that they should have been supportive of and in favor of, and put them in prison and out of harm's way. Now, it's not the situation that Peter and John would have chosen. It's easy to start thinking, well, that was far from ideal. But don't miss what's said in verse 4. Have a look at it. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Don't miss that miracle of the faith of the 5,000. God is still at work, though his people are in prison. Fascinating coming back to the UK after three years away for myself and four for Hannah. The observations, the things you see. I don't think I've ever had so many people tell me how broken Britain is. Don't worry, watching on from New Zealand, I have lots of New Zealanders telling me, oh, Britain's pretty broken. Without jumping in on it, I think actually much of the world is pretty broken at the moment. And it's easy for us to think, what on earth is God doing? Don't miss what I said there just in summary about tonight's reports. It's been a tough three years, but God is still at work. Can God still work when war is going on in Ukraine? Well, yes, he can. Or when there's a global pandemic and restrictions abound? Of course he can. Don't think, don't fall into the trap of thinking that just because something seemingly negative is happening, that God isn't at work. No, 
God is still actively involved, actively working, and here bringing 5,000 people to faith. The story continues from verse 5 and following. The religious leaders, some of whom just weeks before had been face-to-face with Jesus at his trial, are now confronting Jesus' followers in a similar court case as they asked Peter and John, by what power or what name did you do this? And as Peter and John answer the question, we have our first point this morning. The clarity of their message. Peter speaks filled with God's Holy Spirit. His words are God's words. It's fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Luke chapter 21. You will bear testimony to me, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Let me just say as an aside, some of you this week are going into the workplace or at the school gate or with family members, and you're going to be inviting them maybe to the men's breakfast. Rico's a good friend of mine as well. It'd be a great message. Or to the carol services coming up. And you're thinking, but what if they ask me something I don't know? Remember Jesus' words. You will bear testimony to me, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourselves. I will give you words. So this week, as you go and invite people, God is going with you. It's abundantly clear as you look through their text, uh, look through the text, Peter and John's message is all about Jesus, the clarity of their message. Do you see it? It's all through Peter's message in chapter 3. It's there in chapter 4 and verse 2 as the apostles are teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. But look with me at verses 8 to 12. Peter's been asked about a cripple, but he wants to talk about the crucified Christ. He's asked about an act of kindness, but he wants to talk about the ultimate act of kindness and love. Look at verse 10. Know this, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Peter has been on the defense, responding to their questions. But as it is in sports, he knows that the best form of defense is attack. And so he goes on on the attack. Verse 11, the stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter and John are absolutely clear. Their message is all about Jesus. I've seen this on campus in the universities and polytechnics in New Zealand with TSCF, as at different times students come up to us and ask different questions. Are you the group that's against whatever issue is present at the time? Abortion, euthanasia, same-sex marriage. And the answer is, no, that's not our message. We seek to have biblical views on different ethical issues, but we are Jesus people. Our message is about a Savior who came to seek and to save that which was lost. I'm much more familiar now with the New Zealand church having been in that that context for the last 15 years. But as I look at the New Zealand church and then from a distance at the global church, including the UK church, it's clear to me that the church globally gets itself into trouble when it moves away 
from keeping Christ at the center. And there is a great temptation to be involved in all sorts of things, sometimes good things, but not the main thing. Let us be people who keep Jesus and him crucified central to who we are and all we proclaim. As the Apostle Paul put it, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We preach Christ crucified. The clarity of their message. That message is summed up in verse 12, which brings us to our next points. Look at verse 12, the exclusivity of Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter and John don't fudge the issue. There is no softening of their stance. Salvation is only found in Jesus. There is no other name by which we must be saved. Peter is simply reiterating what Jesus himself had said. Do you remember those words in John chapter 14 and verse 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And let's be clear, whether you're in New Zealand or secular Britain, those words are radically countercultural. You see, our culture wants to say all religions lead to God, that we must be tolerant of all people, but Jesus' message is quite different. It's no less inclusive because it's an offer that is open to all of humanity, but it is exclusive that salvation is found in no one else. In a world that is pluralistic, secular, synchronistic, apathetic, Jesus says, come to me, come through me. There is no other way, there is no other name. And so that means each one of us must come to Christ. That means you, your friends, your family, if you're relying on good works or right religion to save them, you will not be saved. Jesus is the name by which we must be saved. Because of our sinful human nature, people always try and soften that blow to make Jesus something or someone that he's not. Some people do it by adding something to Jesus. Follow Jesus and this religious book or practice. Some people do it by taking away from Jesus. He's good, but he's not God. Some will go their own way and try and do it without God at all. In New Zealand, we have a leading theologian who really should know better, Professor Lloyd Gearing. He wrote a book called Christianity Without God. Doesn't that sum up what many people are trying to do? It's another false religion. The God of the Bible is God who has revealed himself in Jesus. As we celebrate at Christmas, the baby in the manger, fully human, fully God, who is the only way to the Father. So what does that look like in practice? Well, I could tell you story after story of students I've seen 
who've come to know Jesus after trying all sorts of things to find fulfillment and searching in different places. But let me tell you about a student called Jackson. I think we have his picture on the next slide. This is Jackson. In the middle of the year, we held our national conference, as it happens in Queenstown. We don't always go to Queenstown, but uh, our conference summit, it's called. It was a great week together. Uh, we don't take those things for granted. And during the course of the week, we had Jackson stand up and share his story of how he'd come to know Jesus. Jackson is a New Zealander, doesn't come from a Christian background, which is pretty typical now in New Zealand. He's interested in the big questions of life. He was working as a scaffolder when the COVID lockdown hit. And as I think many of you know, New Zealand's restrictions initially were some of the strictest in the world. Jackson lost his job as a scaffolder. But he was someone that was interested in the bigger things of life. He used to watch Jordan Peterson, the Canadian philosopher on YouTube, as well as exploring religions and philosophies. And so when he lost his job, he thought, well, what should I do next? I know, I'll go and study philosophy at university. And so he arrived in a place called Palmerston North to study philosophy at university. While he was there, in the course of his classes, he met a Christian student, girl, and was asking her questions about what she believed and why. Winsomely and graciously, she answered as many of them as she could, but eventually said to him, you know what, you really ought to come along to a group I'm part of, TSF, the organization I work with, student groups telling other students about Jesus. Jackson said, yeah, I'd love to. When's your next meeting? And she said, well, actually, there's one later on today. Why don't you come along to it? Now, in terms of meetings that you would invite Jackson to, an evangelism training session probably wasn't the one that I would have chosen. But he came along. There he met Christian students and TSEF staff, and he started reading the Bible regularly with one of our staff members. He encountered Jesus. Last year at our national conference, so um, the first one we were able to hold post-pandemic or post-lockdowns, he trusted Christ as his Lord and Savior. A year on at this year's conference, he was telling the story of God working in his life to bring him to salvation. To put it succinctly, Jesus saves. Now the trouble is, all of us have people in our mind that we can think of, and you think, yes, Jesus saves, but not that person. Let me ask us, let me ask myself, do you really believe that? That God can save the worst, the wickedest, the furthest from him? The exclusivity of Jesus, Jesus saves. That brings us to my final point, the necessity of salvation. You see, while it may be countercultural to say that Jesus is the only way, it is equally countercultural and offensive to say that we must be saved. See, no one likes to think of themselves as bad people, not compared to Adolf Hitler or Osama bin Laden or whoever you, you think of in that category. 
And none of us likes to see ourselves as being in need of rescue, especially here in Britain where we pride ourselves on being good and respectable people. We don't want to be told that our best isn't good enough. We want to be able to solve a problem ourselves. But the message is absolutely clear. Salvation is necessary. This Christmas, as we celebrate, we celebrate that Jesus has not simply come as a good man, nor is he simply the God-man, though he is both good and God, but he is to be Lord and Saviour. Remember what the angels proclaimed? It was the first Christian message heard in New Zealand 200-odd years ago. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. What is the good news? A Savior has been born, Christ the Lord. The message of Christianity is that we are in urgent need of rescue. A few years ago, I drove our family to a holiday in a place called New Plymouth. It's in a place called Taranaki, a region called the Taranaki, um, rural New Zealand. Mount Taranaki is a bit like Mount Fuji. There's a volcano. Beautiful. And as we drove through rural Taranaki, we came across a beautiful waterfall on the side of the road. One of the great things about New Zealand is as you drive around, there's things to see all over the place. And so I pulled over onto the grass verge. We got out, we took our pictures, got back in the car, and as soon as I tried to take away or move away from, from that spot, I realized we're stuck. See, the grass was wet, and the car had no grip. We just couldn't get out. Being male, I just tried harder. <laughs> and it got worse. I could almost picture it in slow motion and the realization of having to turn to Jen and go, we're stuck. No matter how hard we tried, and believe me, we got the kids out pushing, we just couldn't get out. One of the problems of New Zealand is that there are vast areas with no mobile phone reception, so we couldn't rig anyone for help, and we just had to sit and wait and wait and wait for a vehicle to come by. Now, in my notes, here's a moment of cross-cultural translation. A ute came by. People from Australia might know that word as well. I see a vet at the back nodding. A van, a ute, this great Kiwi word. Thankfully, he had some rope and was able to help us. But you see what happened? There was a point where I had to realize I cannot save myself. I cannot get out of this mess myself. I need rescue. And as embarrassing as that might have been, it was the honest truth. And until I was able to admit it, there was nothing that I could do to make the situation better. Now, it might be a simple illustration, but as simple human beings, our situation is far worse. We need to realize we are in a perilous situation. We are in need of rescue. We cannot save ourselves. We need someone outside of the situation to come and save us. And that's why the Bible tells us that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 
The Bible teaches us we are dead in sins, not just in trouble, but actually dead. We need uh, resurrection. We need rescue. And the trouble is we see ourselves as immortal. There's no urgency. Life's there to be lived. But the Bible says people are destined to die once, and after that, the judgment. You see, salvation is both necessary and urgent. In dying for us and rising from the dead, Jesus accomplished victory over both sin and death. He became our sin bearer, our substitute, our savior, taking the place, taking our place, taking our sins, taking our punishment so we could be forgiven. And Peter's appeal to those who are listening to him is cease your rejection of Christ. Turn to him. Choose life and be saved. I've been involved in this church for over 20 years now. I know a number of you, but there are a whole load of you that I don't know. I have no doubt that here this morning there will be some of you who that's you. You're rejecting Christ. And God's word, Peter, says, cease your rejection of Christ. Turn to him. The one who died for you, the one who rose conquering sin and death, the one who is coming and will judge the living and the dead. You see, salvation is necessary. Salvation is found in no one else. Come to him. But I also know many of you here having trusted in him as followers of him. Well, remember, as I do in New Zealand, be clear in your message, telling other people of Jesus. Proclaim him. Proclaim his exclusivity, that he is the only way, the only truth, the only life. Explain the necessity of salvation, that Jesus needs to be both Lord and Savior. And your task here in Richmond and the regions around here is to take that message to a world which needs Jesus. You want to know why I moved to New Zealand 15 years ago, why we continue to live there? It's not a lifestyle choice. It's because people need the life that comes through Christ. Just one last thing as I close. Maybe you sat here this morning and thinking, but Ben, look at you, you've had training. Yes, I have. But I'm just an ordinary person. There's nothing special about myself, nothing special about John. In fact, Peter and John want us to be reminded. Have a look at verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were ordinary, unschooled men, They were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. You don't need to be a super apostle. You don't need to be someone that has been schooled brilliantly, though you may have been. Be like them. Be ordinary. Be yourself. Be with Jesus and then take him with you into the workplace, into school, into college, to the sports fields, the orchestras, the choirs. And don't assume or miss the main thing as you proclaim that salvation is found in no one else.
for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Amen. Thank you very much, Ben. Well, we're going to stand and sing of that great name of Jesus, at which every knee shall one day bow. Let's stand to sing.